Welcome to the Austin Forum Upload, the podcast of the Austin Forum on technology and society. Every episode, we upload for you the expertise, insights, and opinions of thought leaders, innovators, and creators on topics at the intersection of technology and society. We'll cover pervasive and emerging technologies that are influencing and impacting our business, education, governments, research, and culture. I'm Jay. I'm Jessica. And I'm John. And we're the co-producers of the Austin Forum Upload. Welcome to the Austin Forum Upload, and we're pleased today to start a new sub-series of the Austin Forum Upload called AI Facts, Fiction, and Fun. I'm Jay Boisseau. I'm joined by my co-director, John Lockman, and we have a third guest with us today, Luke Wilson. Thanks for joining us today and for this sub-series going forward. You want to introduce yourself, Luke? Well, thanks for having me on. I'm uh, Luke Wilson. I work at Dell Technologies as part of the HPC and AI Innovation Lab, and just love talking about all things AI. So Luke, John, and I work together during the day, and we also work together on our side projects. So we're happy to bring you this sub-series. Um, we're going to start today by giving you each our fun fact, something about AI and fiction, and then something just fun in general about AI. Uh, in future episodes of this subseries, we'll bring special guests on who are AI experts and we'll ask them these same three questions. So guys, you ready to begin? Let's go. Let's get started. All right, let's start with the facts, AI facts for this episode. John, what's your favorite recent fact news story, uh, something real that happened in AI in January, 2021? So last year, we saw the absolutely massive neural network model GPT-3, which was designed for natural language processing, generating human-like text. Um, we've also seen a lot of different uh, models for generating imagery, uh, GANs and other things like that. But the OpenAI group this year combined some of that imagery uh, generation with the uh, GPT text generation and can now create imagery that's realistic and plausible from the input that you've given it. It's, uh, it's called Dolly, the model, and it sounds like uh, kind of a play off of the artist uh, Salvador Dolly and maybe also off of the robot Wally from Pixar. Yeah, this is a, a really interesting model. In fact, the images that it generates are just astoundingly good and remarkably ridiculous. Some of these phrases that they've used, I, I think their, their kind of cover image is the avocado armchair. And it's just a sliced in half avocado with feet. Yeah, I, I can't believe they haven't offered this up as a service yet for everybody to play with language and see what kinds of images it creates because the avocado chair is hilarious and it makes great images by combining those terms and making realistic looking chairs that look like they're made from a giant avocado. So. Yeah, it's, it, this is this has got to be a fun service that they release someday. I, I hope. Well, I imagine it's got to be a profit generator for. Think about the creative space of just being able to generate a logo off the top of your head. Of uh, I want a a snail that is a harp, right? And it can generate forty or fifty different things that it thinks might be that. Um, and maybe you can you can use your creative team to play off of that. That is a yeah, great idea. I would love to create logos from 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 words like that would be fun. Yeah. You, you know this is going to turn into some sort of Amazon marketplace sort of thing where people are going to be selling avocado armchairs and bacon beds and all sorts of different ridiculous things, trying to use as much consonants as possible. 
I will definitely buy the bourbon toothpaste for sure off Amazon if they can make a healthy one. Luke, what is your favorite fact from January about something remarkable done with AI? So kind of building off of what John was saying about Dolly, which is an an incredible model, but it's enormous. Open AI tends to do this. They, They build the absolute largest models they can come up with that would be impossible for anyone else with any reasonable amount of compute. And by reasonable, I mean 10 megawatts or less um, to to be able to generate. But there's a team in Munich uh, at the University of Munich there that has built an equivalent model to GPT-3, but with 99.9% fewer parameters. So instead of 175 billion parameters, you're looking at a few hundred thousand parameters. It's an absolutely astounding difference. And I was reading through the paper because, you know, we're in lockdown and I'm a geek and what am I going to do with the rest of my time? I'm going to read a scientific paper. But I was reading through the paper and the one drawback that they list is that it doesn't work as well on long phrases. It works just as well or better than GPT-3 on short phrases or short sets of words. I think that's perfect because who nowadays has the attention span to listen to a long set of words anyway? I mean, everyone's attention span is only 280 characters anyway, right? So I think this is a great example of what can happen when we start exploring how to make these models smaller as opposed to make them as big as possible. Yeah. Well, first of all, I thought it was impressive that you said you read that paper because what else are you going to do on lockdown? And I think John and I know you were going to read that paper anyway, lockdown. or, or That's true. That's so, absolutely yeah. true. But, but what is the implications for that, right? I mean, doesn't that mean that uh, now you can use far less computing power to train very good models and you can make it much easier to create language models and then distribute those and, you know, we all want that science fiction future of language translation and things like that to be easy in real time. And you, you need to be able to train good models uh, on lots of languages around the world in lots of places if you want to improve the ability to deploy these models. Yeah. And I mean, that 99.9% reduction, that's the difference of running this on your laptop versus in a data center, right? That's a huge, huge power savings in just being able to build and fine tune these models if you want to train them for other things. And I mean, on the long text, I mean, I think the GPT-3 still kind of fails in the in the long form as well. It starts to get really, really weird and disjoint as it grows, you know, and and these these models, they look, they're, they're crazy cool. They do really cool stuff with small, small phrases, um, but they seem completely mindless if you try to go beyond some of these really basic examples. Um, so I think there's still a lot of room for growth in these in this model development. I, I think it is a, just amazing that we even do as well as we do in some of these language models. I mean, it's, it's easy to see how we can train these AI systems to play rules-based games. It's easy to see how we can train these AI systems to do pattern-based images and such. But language, man, the English language is a mongrel language with inputs from Germanic and Celtic and uh, Latin roots and whatnot. And we use it in all these weird ways. And granted, we spew a lot of language out. And so there's a lot of training data out there, but language is imprecise and people use it in weird ways. And the, I, I, I'm, I'm constantly amazed at the ability of these these AI models to generate meaningful language. And of course, constantly amused when they try to generate poetry or 
or screenplays or things. Those, those are always fun. <laughs> and I think, I think the long text generation, you mentioned that even GPT-3 has problems drifting off when it's doing long text generation. I mean, that's nothing but not intelligent. Intelligent beings do that too. I mean, imagine we were recording this podcast at 11 o'clock at night as opposed to four o'clock in the <laughs> afternoon. There's no telling what we would be talking about. It'd just be unintelligible ramblings for hours on end. So I think that's, I think that's as much a testament to how close it is to intelligence as it is how far away it is from intelligence because intelligent beings just ramble on all the time. We, we never know what we're talking about most of the time. So having a model that can do that too, I think is, is more amazing than a model that is strict and correct all the time. So Luke, I, I think that's hilarious that you compared that to intelligence. And I, I think we need to remind our listeners that the definition of artificial intelligence is, off, is, is often um, creating computational processes that uh, do work that would normally be thought to re uh, require human intelligence to do. And so you just implicitly related that to human intelligence. And I and I, I certainly hope that we can create artificial intelligence that surpasses human intelligence. But my favorite AI fact for January comes from a research paper that was published in the Journal of Artificial Intelligence Research on January 5th. It's from a European team. It got picked up by the various news media and shared in a distilled form over the next couple of weeks. But the basic summary of this article was that superintelligence cannot be contained. And it was a research paper that showed from first principles how if we develop an AI with superintelligence, we not only will not be able to contain it, we won't even be able to understand it. And they showed how such a superintelligence could have the intelligence of all other existing AI programs incorporated within it which means that to understand it, you'd have to be able to write a program that understood everything that it understood, i.e. replicating that superintelligence. And that was a pretty interesting, but kind of scary thought as well, that we may eventually develop a superintelligence that trains itself, learns from what it trains itself on, surpasses us, and we don't even see it coming. What are your thoughts on that, Luke and John? They do a good job of using the theoretical computer science side of the argument to say that it's incomputable to even be able to understand if an AI became super intelligent. So really, we're completely blocked at the point of even if we created it today, there's no way for us to really know if we did it, is their argument. And that's... That is kind of terrifying because, you know, in that kind of situation, as we continue to build stuff, we're just, well, we build this and, oh, this can identify cats, dogs, and sandwiches. And this module can identify people. So it unlocks the doors for the right people. I still find it kind of a stretch to go from what we have in those sort of models to super death machine. <laughs> well, to, to be fair, they didn't say this was imminent and there's reason to believe such a super intelligence might be many decades out, if ever. But I, you're, like you said, it, they, they did discuss this from the standpoint of first principles of a theoretical foundation. And they explain why this, we might not be able to recognize it. And if it happens, we might not be able to contain it. Well, I'm, I'm gonna put on my computer science geek hat here for a second. 
It's, it I like the fact that he thinks he's putting on his computer science geek hat now, as opposed it's to the always on. It's exactly. Go ahead, Luke. But I, I, it sounds to me like they're basically restating the the halting problem, where you know a Turing machine, you know, being a computer, can never tell if a program is going to run to completion or not. It can't. It can't make that determination as, as to whether or not a. a a Turing machine cannot make the determination as to whether something running on the Turing machine is Turing complete. So it sounds to me like a, a restatement of that same problem, in which case, since the AI has to be Turing computable, if it's running on a computer, it probably can't become super intelligent because it would halt the system. Well, you're absolutely right, Luke. Part of the team's reasoning, and I'm quoting now from the article on Science Alert, but part of the team's reasoning comes from the halting problem put forward by Alan Turing in 1936. The problem centers knowing whether or not a computer program will, will reach a conclusion and answer, so it halts, or simply loop forever trying to find one. So they did take that into consideration and in the creation of this superintelligence. And we can always just pull the plug. I mean, let's, let's be honest. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I, I, I never understood why in these science fiction movies where people aspire to create these super intelligent machines, they don't just pull the plug. And, and let's be real. When you're creating a super intelligence, you want to make sure that it's not battery powered and it doesn't have opposable thumbs. If you just don't do those two things, shouldn't we be okay? And don't connect it to the internet <laughs> or provide it with one of those, those great you know, telephone hookup modems like what we saw in war games. <laughs> on these are three great uh, facts for ai for the month of january i want to move on to the fictions ai is commonly used in uh, tv and movies and books and it's a it's a wonderful device to leverage luke just mentioned war games which is actually one of my favorite ai movies but uh luke and john how about you two start and i'll i'll close what, what were your favorite uses of ai and fictional content this month and do you have any uh criticism of it so I'm going to go back a few months because I have young kids and it takes me a while to get around to watching TV. Uh, but I finally watched Star Trek Picard uh, on CBS and the show was great. But I think um, in the very first episode, there, there's a scene where, um, where Picard uh, is interacting with Lieutenant Commander Data. And of course, Brent Spiner, who great actor, loved him as Data. Um, he is not as young as he used to be. And it's really hard to represent an immortal android when you continue to age. So the, the scene, you can tell that Brent Spiner has aged a little bit. And what I wish they would have done is taken advantage of some modern AI techniques as opposed to just doing you know 20 pounds of makeup uh, is actually inserted an AI generated version of him from 20 years ago. And, and someone went ahead and did this because what Star Trek fan on the internet with access to compute resources is not going to think I can do this better than, than the production studio can. And, uh, and so there, there's several YouTube videos out there that I saw that actually replaced Brent Spiner in that episode with the version of Brent Spiner from Star Trek First Contact. So the last time he you know, really got to play the part um, you know, 20, almost 20 years ago, I guess now. And, and it looked tons better, I think, than, than what they went, 
went with in, in the in the final release. And I think I think those are situations uh, where we could be using AI to much greater advantage than we are. I wish they had actually done it. And, and there are a couple of cases where where other production studios have. I think uh, Terminator Salvation or something actually used the 1984 version of Arnold Schwarzenegger in the movie, and it's a 2007 movie. So there's. I think I think it would have been a a, a place where. In, in fiction anyway, it would have been better to use AI, even though they didn't. I, I'm with you totally. I watched Picard. Um, I love Brent Spiner. And on the one hand, my heart got a warm fuzzy from seeing Brent Spiner in that role. But the scientist in me thought, well, androids don't eat that much and gain weight over their lifetime. So why did they use a heavy, and I'm not trying to body shame any robots or androids in this comment, but I, I totally thought, why did they not use deep fake for, for data? They were upgrades <laughs> or, you know, it was, you know, before the upgrades, one of the two. <laughs> sort of like that white streak he put in his hair to be distinguished at one point. Yeah, let's be clear. I wasn't judging because it was in the middle of a pandemic and I haven't exactly gotten leaner during the pandemic either. So, but I just didn't, I thought that was an odd thing, but, but I, I did actually admire the warmth of it. I was really happy to mm -hmm. see an unaltered data. Um, I, it was good to see Brent Spiner be the actor in that role, even though it was a clear uh, change, shall we say, from Commander Data from the series. John, what about you? What was your uh, favorite uh, bit of AI in fiction recently? Well, I mean, you know, as Luke pointed out, we see, we're see we seeing a lot of AI in, it just in media entertainment in general, right? As in like replacing people or using deep fakes to, to bring the dead alive to, to be at, you know, in a film. But We've always kind of also seen characters like Data where we have like a, a real life Android or a, a human like uh, computer. Um, we've seen those over the times, but I think the most recent that's been interesting is out of WandaVision um, where we have this Android character that uh, has allowed uh, Paul Bettany to, to live through all four phases of the Marvel Cinematic Universe. And now here he is as just kind of a 1950s sitcom guy. And it's very blurred that line of, uh, oh yeah, right. He's an AI robot thing with a Mind Stone or something, but you just don't even think about it. He's just a human character. And I think that's kind of really cool in our, our, current, our current world where we're seeing um, that line of fiction just, just being completely blurred. And he's not in a, in a subservient role. Like we see it a lot where humanoid robots are used in subservient roles or even to some extent, like if you, going back to the whole commander data thing from Star Trek, if you go back to the first seasons of Star Trek, the next generation, he was treated basically as, you know, indentured servant. He was a tool. Or, or labor. Yeah. Um, and, and the fact that now we've got shows like WandaVision uh, where you know it's an AI, you know it's an automaton, but it's very human and everyone is okay with that. I think that says a lot about how far we've come in you know, 20 or 30 years. I, I agree. I, I mean, I'm a, I'm a huge Marvel fan. And so I'm, I love that, that example, John. Um, I'm going to bring up a different example that, that is related to what both of you said. And it's the, the Mandalorian the final episode, and since this is going to be released at the end of January 2021, I'm not going to apologize for any spoilers here. If you have not seen the final episode, 
recorded so far of The Mandalorian by the end of January 2021. Stop listening now. But the awesome final episode had Luke Skywalker come in and absolutely kick butt. In fact, my first thought was the Mandalorian should feel kind of ashamed as a warrior. I mean, their entire species is about being great warriors. And he had trouble with one of those dark troopers. And then Luke Skywalker comes in and lays waste to all of them in no time at all. And it was great to see him pull that hood back and be Luke Skywalker at the appropriate age in the timeline. And that was awesome, but it didn't look quite right. And it turned out they used standard Hollywood CGI techniques to de-age him. And Marvel has used these techniques a lot. They used it for Luke in the end of The Mandalorian. And one of the things The Mandalorian has to get credit for is they have uh, used a lot of computational techniques to create their backdrops and scenery at much lower cost than big budget science fiction movies. And that's allowed them to do some great stuff during a pandemic. But the Luke Skywalker effect was noticeably lacking if you're a true Star Wars nerd. And it, and it has to remind you of the Justice League effect on Henry Cavill and, and Superman, where you know they had filmed all of the footage and then they had to do the inevitable reshoots of certain scenes. But Henry Cavill was already contracted out for Mission Impossible, I don't know, six or whatever, seven or whatever it was. And he had a mustache in that role. And his contract said he couldn't shave the mustache until they finished shooting that. So when he went back for the reshoots, they had to digitally remove the mustache. And they used some CGI techniques on this $300 million budget movie. And his upper lip looked weird in the movie. And then someone, and it's you can find this on the internet, used a $500 used computer with a graphics card and used AI techniques instead and had a much more realistic deep fake method as opposed to CGI method, upper lip for Superman. And in fact, as we record this podcast, I'm looking at the comparison on my screen right now. And there's a comparison of the Luke Skywalker in CGI in the last episode of The Mandalorian and the deep fake version of Luke Skywalker it looks better. So for all these negative things we hear about deep fakes and it is a real potential problem, it is also a powerful capability and more powerful than traditional CGI techniques in many cases. Yeah, it is. I think, and we've brought up, I guess, two or three different examples so far where it would have been better to use AI than uh, the way that the production studio wanted to do it. And I, I think that, you know, there's a, there's a large CGI industry in, in Hollywood, in, in the production studios. Um, I think it really says something that, you know, with the, with a leftover laptop and a little bit of TensorFlow code, you can, you can do a better job than, than, than a lot of the production houses seem to be doing. Yeah. So I, I, think I hope that becomes the, the way of the future yeah, in, and it, in Hollywood. It, it's been the way with uh, photography. A lot of folks today use their iPhone or their Android phone as their their main camera. And it uses just some machine learning and a little bit of AI to make those nice uh, portrait backgrounds or the 
crazy face softening filters and things like that. So I think we start to see that trickle down in lots more than just CGI. You know, you see it in, uh, in lots of other industries. Yeah, we don't see it yet in scripts. I don't know if y'all have read any of the scripts that have been generated by AIs, but even if they train them with scripts that have been reviewed as among the best scripts in history, the AI language is just so hard and the scripts are kind of crap, but the imagery is great. That is patterns that these algorithms are really good at. And so, you know, I think it's it's not long before we see um, lots of AI used in the rendering, uh, in the imagery of movies while humans are handling the script and the, and the dialogue. All right, let's move on to our final category tonight. And that is fun. Although our fiction topics bordered into the fun area as well, but now we're going to close with the fun things that you've noticed in the last month or so in AI Luke, let's start with you. What was your favorite fun use of AI in the last month or so? So this one is not in the last month or so, but it makes me laugh every single time. And there's this, there's this group in China that for the last two president, U.S. presidential administrations has been making deep fakes, both video and audio of the president of the United States speaking Mandarin. And you know they, they did one with Obama, they, they did one with Donald Trump, which was absolutely hilarious. Um, and I, I'm just looking forward to the day in the, it's gotta be just a couple of weeks away when they release um, Joe Biden speaking Mandarin using voice cloning and deep fake uh, methods. And, and it's, it's scary in a way, but I think I think the scariest the, the AI models that have the scariest implications for ethicists are the most hilarious ones right now on YouTube. I'm sorry, I, that may sound dark or morbid, but it's absolutely hilarious, and I, I would I would I could listen to them all day. Well, we're, we're probably not allowed to make any kind of real political joke. Well, I guess if it's a joke, we can do it, right? So I, I sort of wonder why they didn't have Donald Trump speak in Russian, but I guess it was a Chinese group that made these uh, deep fakes as well. I mean, so. well, that's funny. There's There's got to be a use in that in the end of, you know, what if you wanted to deliver a speech to a room uh, where everybody spoke a different language? How great would it be that you could speak and in real time it would translate your voice into every other language, but in your voice? I mean, that's yeah, cool. That, that's that's cool. the impressive thing about this uh, this work, right? Is that it didn't just translate the language from English to Chinese, but it translated it in his voice or a, a synthetic voice very similar to his. So yeah, it, it's an interesting technique. It's actually someone speaking Chinese, so it's it's complete proper Mandarin, but they've. Re- they've used neural voice cloning to completely replace the sound signature of the original speaker with a sound signature that sounds very much like Donald Trump. So it's a, it's a native Chinese speaker. And I could see something like the United Nations using this where you have, you know, the team of translators up in the booth that are translating, um, you know, the speeches to the, to the representatives down below. Um, but when, when it gets to the ambassador's earpieces, it, it sounds like the person who's actually talking and not just their translation team. 
course, how worried, we just talked about how AI is not perfect at language translation. You've got the UN discussing something of global importance and significance and an AI is making the translations. That does make me a little nervous still. <laughs> yeah, Maybe it's hope, better for comedy than for the United Nations for right now. We hope the translations are, are a little more than 80-ish percent, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, if anyone listening out there needs something to do on a Saturday afternoon or something, I'm not going to say evening because I'm going to assume everyone has something to do most evenings. But if you have time on a Saturday afternoon, just get on Google Translate and pick two ran pick English and a random language and try and translate back and forth between those two things with the same phrase. It is amazing the random stuff you will get out of that, that translation exercise. Yeah, and it's the back and forth that's interesting. And you have to use more than three word sentences, but if you use a sentence in one language and translate to another and then take the output of that and go back to the first, which you entered, so you know what it should be. It's, it's fun, right? You see that it's a, sometimes it's not exactly what was put in. So. It sort of devolves kind of like the YouTube experiment <laughs> where you keep re-uploading the, the, up, the YouTube Im image or the video and the, the quality continues to degrade until it's just a screeching sound and a few blips. <laughs> you, fin you finally get to that idiot version of Michael Keaton and <laughs> you know, keep making copies of yourself. Oh, the internet's fun. Um, John, what about you? What was your favorite fun thing in AI in the last month or so? Oh, the fun. I'm, I'm coming back to the, the GPT-3, the Dolly and the Clip uh, models. I mean, the, the avocado armchairs are hilarious. Go find the photos of them. You can see how a computer might think that a, an avocado slice could look like a chair. I get it. Um, but the fun parts out of that, that, that haven't been super explored yet is the applying that to making uh, guitar tablature or even cooler in the computer science world to generating actual code with those models. So being able to have a, uh, right now programmers can use IDEs that greatly assist you in using, uh, specified libraries and you know, auto-correcting your syntax for you. Uh, but what if you could have a model like this that's really just spitting out code chunks and you're just kind of fixing the pieces that it does wrong? I mean, that's cool. That is cool. But, you know, we, we are constantly dealing with security issues in software due to bugs and other software bug issues. So, you know, I, I hear a lot about this when AI can generate code, but is it going to be better code because it follows rules and AI is really good at rules-based things? Or is it going to be subject to the inputs from the, the human programmers that are now voicing what they want it to do and the ambiguities and interpretations of human language potentially introducing a new source of software bugs and probably security holes? I'd say Luke and I always laughed because the last chapter of every Lisp book, uh, you know, a uh, programming language of lost and silly parentheses. Um, that last chapter of that book always had this claim that eventually we will write meta modules that can write their own modules. And it was such a great idea, but we kind of laughed at it. And now I think we're kind of questioning if we should be still laughing. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think, uh, I think Jay's onto something. I think the, the potential here for odd security problems or injection attacks are are rampant i mean it takes me it just reminds me of the whole uh bobby drop tables sort of thing you know <laughs> where you can just put in whatever input you want and all of a sudden your your database is destroyed 
Well, I'm going to close with my fun AI usage recently, and it's not, uh, it's actually not in the last month, but, but it's in an area that's near and dear to my heart and that's whiskey. And so I recently did an online whiskey tasting and we were discussing AI and whiskey in this event for the Austin Forum. And I decided to Google AI and whiskey and see what came up. And it turns out AI has been used to develop a whiskey and it's from a distillery, an award-winning distillery apparently called MacMyra. Um, MacMyra is in Sweden. Uh, it's, uh, the distiller is named Angela Dorazio and she is a master blender and chief nose officer, which sounds like a pretty awesome job to be the chief, chief nose officer at a distillery. And they were talking about AI and its potential. And next thing you know, they decided to do something about it. And uh, Microsoft was involved and they use a consulting company that was local. And they had the distiller share what was good and bad about different recipes, different mash bills for whiskeys. And the whiskey uh, algorithm took all of these as training inputs and it spit out some recipes. And from her own experience, she knew which of those might have gone off in a bad direction and wouldn't work. So she played the role of part of the AI and punishing the training model and saying, no, that won't work. Or yes, that's a possibility. And by recipe 36, she had something that she thought, this sounds pretty good. This sounds like it is It is learned from all of the data we've given it from other recipes that have been good and, and how we've told it what's not good. And they went ahead and produced recipe number 36. And apparently it is a good whiskey. And it was, uh, they say it wasn't made with AI. They say the recipe was generated with AI, with human curation throughout the process to ensure they uh, improve the model and then picked a recipe that was good. But this MacMyra distillery now offers a whiskey called Intelligence that was derived with AI. And that, that was my favorite fun fact. It turns out it's very expensive for me to get. So I haven't actually tried it yet, but, but I'm eager to try this whiskey. That's, that's cool. And it sounds a lot like most of the AI models that we build today. There's still a lot of human intervention. There's still a lot of human decisions being made in a lot of the systems that we're building. And, and think about a system like this. This is uh, uh, very much opinion uh, based on uh, how big is that data set, right? If it's one, one brewer or one distiller uh, and they have the notes for what they're trying to go for, it, it becomes a very biased system, right? But, um, but it's still really neat to see how you can, how you can kind of craft from all of these different options, an optimization, right? And that's, that's really what a lot of these are is, how can I optimize the things that you've said are great so that I can make that into what your outcome is? Yeah, I think this is a space that is gonna see a lot of exploration. I mean, I, I've heard about some of the, you know, AI generated recipes for different, you know, dishes and, you know, now, now AI generated whiskey. And, and, and this technique is used in a lot of other places too, so that we see, you know, AI being used in design to try and recommend, you know, configurations of, of parts, you know, for putting together new things uh, and things like that. So these kind of recipe building AI, I think are gonna be more and more prevalent in the future. And uh, hopefully they're gonna produce some pretty good whiskeys as we go along. I hope so. And with, with that, 
we will wrap this up. I, I hope our listeners have appreciated this format that we're using. Uh, we're going to come to you every month and we're going to bring a special guest every month who's an expert in AI and have them share their favorite AI fact, fiction, and fun. We'll comment on that, of course. In the meantime, I hope you will go and Google some of the things that we have mentioned today, everything from the super intelligent AI, uh, definitely avocado chairs, AI whiskey, the deep fake for Luke Skywalker in The Mandalorian, Donald Trump speaking Chinese, and more. So with that, thank you all very much for listening, and we look forward to coming back at you next month. Thanks for listening to the Austin Forum Upload. You can listen to additional episodes and check out a schedule of our monthly in-person events at austinforum.org. The Upload is a production of the Austin Forum on Technology and Society, a nonprofit organization here in Austin, Texas.